the one and only Hugh Masakela Brahu. So, as you know, last week was the mining in Daba down in Cape Town. I was chatting to someone who was there and he said there were some really exciting things going on and uh, really some positive things to come out of it as well, which is always uh, encouraging in a space like that, particularly given our economy. So we thought we'd uh, take a little look at two areas of mining that um, the one gets a hell of a lot of coverage, and that, of course, is uh, survival mining, or what's often called illegal miners or zamezames, and they continuously dominate the headlines in a variety of spaces. But then we thought we'd also go into small-scale artisanal mining and try and find out how that operates as a legal entity and the kinds of uh, opportunities that work in that particular space and sector as well. To talk to us about the illegal mining or survival mining or zamazamas, we've got David van Veek on the line, independent research professional, who has been working with the Benchmarks Foundation uh, on illegal mining and looking at some of the issues, particularly the roots and the historical context of that particular type of mining as well. David, thank you so much for making the time. Hello, David. Hi, Michelle. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now loud and clear. Um, Thanks so much yeah. for joining okay. us. So, David, let's um, try and understand, if we look at um, the root causes of something like uh, illegal or survival miners, talk to us about what those causes are and how they're being addressed as well with regards to our um, government. Well, I think, yes, the the problem of illegal mining has its roots in a crumbling migrant labor system. Um, you know, for 150 years, the, the big mining companies that operated large-scale industrial mines recruited labor from Lesotho, they recruited labor from southern Mozambique, from Zimbabwe, from Espatini, and from the Eastern Cape, and so on. <clears throat> and hundreds of thousands of people got on the train and, and came to Johannesburg and came to the areas where the mining was taking place. We, we have to accept that large-scale industrial mining is in decline in this country and that the numbers of workers that used to be employed in these mines are no longer being employed. Just in the last year, Sabanya, Anglo, and a whole host of mining companies actually issued retrenchment notices to thousands of workers. Now, now what, what we are seeing is that we are shifting from large-scale industrial mining to medium and small-scale mining, and the large-scale industrial mines, many of them are actually becoming abandoned mines. Mm. ownerless and derelict mines. So people who have been working on those mines have no skills other than mining. They've never been trained in portable skills that they could take back to where they come from. And the areas where they come from never actually developed because the human resources of the Eastern Cape were sitting in the northwest province, sitting in Gauteng, sitting in the Free State. The, 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 the human resources of southern Mozambique were sitting in South Africa, and the same with the Sutu and so on. So those areas actually never developed. So people now try to go back there, and when they get back there, they find that there is no no economic opportunities there. And so they come back. The other thing, of course, is that it's become a tradition to come to the mines. Uh, you know, um, um, young men saw their grandfathers coming to the mines. They saw their fathers coming to the mines. They saw their uncles coming to the mines. And, you know, it, 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 uh, people, people felt that this is where you come. To, mm. to, to come and work. You come and work in South Africa on the mines, and then uh, hopefully you will make enough money to take back home 
to be able to make uh, a rural living uh, back home for your family and so on. But, you know, it gets very complicated because very often these guys start a second family in the mining areas. Then they sit with two families on wages that are not the best wages in the world, and they have to distribute that money between those two families. Um, and also the other thing, of course, is that many of them find themselves in a the predicament because the pension funds make it very difficult for people to actually get their pensions out uh, or to get the monies that accrue to them, the unemployment fund monies, the, the money for uh, for silly courses and so mm. on. It's very difficult to get access to that money because you have to have access to internet, you have to have access to computers, you have to have access to all kinds of things, which people don't have in, in rural areas. David, so yeah. very often when a mine gets abandoned, the yeah. workers also get abandoned. Yeah, and, and that, so you, you, you've, you've, you've picked up on something that I wanted to take further. So a mine might close down or a mine might um, not certainly not do as much work as it has done in the past. I'm talking of one of the large-scale mm-hmm. mines and miners. Is yeah. what, what then happens, as you've noted, is that um, a large portion of the miners may then get retrenched. One would have assumed that part of retrenchment, um, the kind of um, ethics of retrenchment is that then um, steps are taken to provide a alternative livelihoods, but also potentially alternative training for people that are being retrenched and for communities that are reliant on the mining sector. Well, yes, you see, we in the research over the years, and we've done this research now over 20 years, what we have found is that very often the training programs of mines make very little impact. For example, if you look at the literacy rates on our mines, yeah. Um, they never actually managed to get better than 60% of their employees being literate. Yeah. You know, in, in, in some areas in Rustenburg, you come across a machine operator who can't read and write, and you wonder how he operates the machine um, and how he, how he sees safety notices and things like that. You know, and so, so the, the, the mines, because the, the, the life of mine is now much shorter than it used to be in the 1940s and 50s, those days when a license was issued, the mine could go on for 100 years. Now the lifespan of a mine is between 10 and 15 years. Hmm. So the people who operate the mine no longer have the, um, you know, they, they, they no longer employ employees full-time. They use a lot of labor brokers and subcontractors, yeah. and they also don't do a lot of training because they, they, they borrow a lot of money to start the mine. They want to repay that money as quickly as possible, and therefore... They don't spend money on training. They don't spend money on the environment. They don't spend, you know, it is, it is, it is cost-cutting mining. Mm. You cut your costs as much as possible to make that mine profitable. So, so David, if we look at that, um, you know, when we come back from the break, we are going to be finding out um, about artisanal mining. And I'm wondering, mm. is there not a space to shift the um, space of illegal slash survival miners into the artisanal space? Well, I think that that is what needs to happen. I think the future of mining in this country is medium and small-scale mining. Mm. Um, uh, you know, so that is where we need to shift to, and that is where we need to re-engineer and repurpose the whole industry towards. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people who are in the, in, in the space who want to become legal. When you talk to them, they say, we want to become legal, but because they are illiterate, because they don't have the necessary skills and so on to go through the paperwork that is required to register and so on. They struggle to do that. They will need assistance with that. 
you actually need to create a whole unit with Mintech or with the DMRE that can assist people to get through the bureaucracy of getting registered. You know, we work with the National Association of Artisanal Miners. Yeah. And, you know, um, in doing that, we find that they have a lot of problems because the police and the army doesn't distinguish between them and the illegal miners. And so everyone gets arrested and only after they go to court is it found, okay, these guys were actually not illegal, yeah. uh, let them go, and so on, you know. So they they have this constant harassment, but also also they find it very, very difficult to get registered. Yeah, I can imagine. David van Veek, thank you so much for joining us, uh, giving us an interesting trajectory, in a way, on the pipeline of mining, independent research professional, uh, currently with the Benchmarks Foundation. After going down by four goals to two in late December, 